Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. The government has had enough and confirms that COVID restrictions will soon be a thing of the past. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. So as we come to the fourth step, we have to balance the risks. On Monday, Boris Johnson confirmed that all coronavirus restrictions, barring some minor exceptions, will be lifted in England on the 19th of July. We must be honest with ourselves that if we can't reopen our society in the next few weeks, when we will be helped by the arrival of summer and by the the school holidays, then we must ask ourselves, when will we be able to return to normal? This means no more social distancing, no more mask wearing and everyone back to the office. A promise that some Tory MPs found rather exciting when the new Health Secretary Sajid Javid updated them in the House of Commons. We will revoke all social distancing guidance, including the two-metre rule. But Javid also admitted that so-called Freedom Day carries with it some dangers. Case numbers uh, could be 50,000 a day by July 19th and during the summer I expect them to continue increasing for a while until uh, they start falling. So just how risky is this gamble? Plus... I solemnly, sincerely and truly declare and affirm that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth her heirs and successors, according to law. <laughs> Seeing Kim Ledbetter, the new MP for Batley and Spen, being sworn in this week will have given Keir Starmer a boost. But how does he use this victory to his advantage? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, to discuss the latest, I'm joined by Guardian columnist Sonia Soda. Sonia, it's lovely to have you on. Um, we sort of knew that most of the aspects of Monday's announcement from Boris Johnson on unlocking were coming, didn't we? And yet somehow it still felt like quite a moment, I think. I think that's right, because I think, first of all, there was a bit of uncertainty over whether most of the restrictions that we still got in place were going to be drop on, dropped on July the 19th in the first place in the light of you know, infections going up really quickly at the moment. Um, And then secondly, I just think psychologically, um, to get to the point where most of the restrictions are going is, I think, a big deal, even though the government's been trailing it for so long. And I suspect people are going to have very mixed feelings about it. There may be some people who think, great, this is the right moment, who sort of embrace the narrative of of Freedom Day that Boris Johnson has used. But I suspect lots of people will be feeling quite nervous about it too. I know I am. Um, I'm looking at infection rates. They're climbing steadily. Um, You know, I'm double vaccinated now. 
the numbers of people who are double vaccinated are growing. So it does seem that we've really got a good way towards breaking that link between infections and hospitalizations and deaths. But we know, for example, that long COVID, the impacts of that can be really debilitating for people who have these very long symptoms. So I'm feeling quite nervous about it, to be honest. And I, I suspect actually a lot of people will be. Yeah, and there'll be particular groups, won't there, that that were told to shield, for example, in the earlier waves, who may well feel that it's not particularly safe being out and about. I think that's right. And I think that's particularly true given, um, you know, the fact that so many restrictions, I mean, it's literally, it feels like the baby's being thrown out with the bathwater. And if you look at things like masks, for example, so the government has said that masks are no longer going to be compulsory on public transport and in shops on the 19th of July. That's really puzzling to me to understand as, as being about anything other than the politics, because masks are effectively, they're quite a low harm, low cost intervention, and they make people feel safer. And actually, the evidence suggests that they um, do make the world a bit safer. And I think particularly if you've not been able to be vaccinated because you're immunocompromised, I've got friends in that position, and they feel actually things are going to be less free for them after the 19th of July, not more free, because with infection rates rising, things even looser, people not having to wear masks on public transport, they feel things are going to be riskier for them. Boris Johnson called it a move from a universal government diktat to relying on people's personal responsibility. Um, He's taken a reasonably cautious approach perhaps in recent months, but this felt like a sort of return to form, didn't it? He's been so uncomfortable with these restrictions and it it really felt as if he he was very pleased kind of politically and he was more himself saying, you know, it's over to you now to the public. All throughout this pandemic, Boris Johnson has resisted putting restrictions in place. And I think that was one of the most striking things about the Dominic Cummings evidence testimony to the House of Commons Select Committee. We already knew um, from sort of briefing and um, sources in government that Johnson wasn't keen on locking down last autumn when scientists were were recommending it. And um, the Cummings testimony uh, sort of backed that up. And I think that's why people are feeling nervous this time around. It's certainly why I'm feeling nervous this time around, because we know that Boris Johnson tends actually to go with the politics rather than the evidence. And I think there's an acceptance that we have to sort of learn to live with this virus, um, that, you know, at some point it's going to be right to relax more restrictions. But I think the questions are everything at the same time, really. And I think the nervousness around it is actually that I think Boris Johnson has resisted doing what's needed and it's had terrible consequences for example the fact that our second wave was more deadly than our first wave that's got a lot to do with the fact that we didn't lock down in a timely fashion in the autumn we relaxed just before Christmas and it took until early January to go into a full lockdown which was really too late. Yeah and in fact Cummings even claimed didn't he that Boris Johnson still regretted even going into the first lockdown last spring so you know felt he'd been sort of bounced into it. Which is crazy. I don't think there are many people left in the country who you know apart from sort of Covid deniers who would be in that position. Sonia I wonder how much difference you think it made having Sajid Javid in that job so we know he's a bit of a libertarian he's an Ayn Rand fan Um, you know he watches the Fountainhead regularly this kind of libertarian sort of fable made into a film in the 40s he had it seemed to me quite a different tone to Matt Hancock when he was announcing the changes I think that's right I think it did make a difference I think if Matt Hancock had still been in post 
Um, I think there would have been a lot of pressure on him from Boris Johnson and on others. And, uh, you know, I think there's a good chance that the cabinet would have still possibly ended up in the same place. But you get the impression that Sajid Javid has embraced uh, Freedom Day, so-called Freedom Day, in a way that Matt Hancock probably wouldn't have. And I think, you know, we can see that again, sort of tracing back through the pandemic, we pretty much know that in the autumn it was Johnson and Sunak, the two sort of most powerful people in the cabinet, who were who were really against a lockdown. But Matt Hancock was really pro it, and for all his flaws. We do know that unlike Johnson, he did seem to learn the lesson of the first wave and knocking down too late. So um, I do think it has actually made a difference having Sergei Javid in, in, in health. And the other thing to say is it's quite a tricky, I mean, quite a tricky is a bit of an understatement, but it's a very difficult time to be starting as health secretary when you've got no experience of the health brief at an absolutely critical time in the pandemic. Do you think there's a risk, Sonia, that so I was talking to one sort of senior Tory yesterday who, who'd lived through some of the sort of pandemic decision making and said to me it, it reminded them of summer 2020, you know, when you had the sort of reopening, this sort of dash to get everything open and eat out to help out and all of that. And, and of course, we know where that ended. Is there a risk do you think they'll have to unpick some of this when the autumn or the winter comes? One of the problems, actually, is, is I agree with you that since sort of um, February, the prime minister has taken a more cautious approach, not on borders. I think he should have taken action on India, uh, where the uh, Delta variant looks like it was seeded much more quickly than he did. And I think that the delay to put in putting India on the red list really had an impact, actually, in terms of how quickly Delta got seeded here in the UK. But apart from that, I think he has been more cautious. But I think the important thing to say is, is that when this roadmap was laid out, you know, we didn't really even know about Delta. Delta wasn't a variant of concern. And it feels like, you know, the Prime Minister at the start said, um, data, not dates. Actually, it feels like it's become dates, not data. And we just don't know what kind of position we're going to be in the autumn around that. So I think it's it's way, way too soon for um, ministers. And, you know, we've seen some ministers sort of, I think, go too far and say, this is it now, there's no going back. You can never promise that in a global pandemic, at you know, in which a, a virus that spreads exponentially is mutating. Yeah, I think Sajid Javid promised that in, in sort of his second or third day in the job, which seemed like a, a bit of a hostage to fortune. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's move on to another member of the cabinet, Sonia Priti Patel. Um, the Home Secretary launched her Nationality and Borders Bill this week. This is the Conservatives trying to deliver, they say, on their promise of, of taking back control of our borders, isn't it? What do you make of this piece of legislation? So the first thing to say is, I mean, I think there are questions over the legality of this approach in international law, where you sort of basically deport asylum seekers who arrive seeking asylum in the UK to an offshore centre. It's not really been challenged in international law before. So I think there are questions about that. Secondly, where on earth is the government going to put us up these asylum seekers? There isn't really a country nearby who's who's willing to take them. Um, the third thing is it leads to terrible, can lead to terrible human rights abuses. So we've seen Australia try this and with the island of Nauru and uh, the consequences for um, people fleeing conflict zones, people to which really rich countries like Australia, like the UK, have a moral obligation to under international law have been absolutely dreadful if you read the reporting around that. So I think it is about cultural signalling and trying to make an enemy 
out of um, asylum seekers, some of the most vulnerable people, actually. And I think we need to have a conversation about how we treat asylum seekers here in the UK, because, you know, asylum seekers are not allowed to work, even though many of them are incredibly qualified coming from conflict war zones. Um, They have to subsist on around five pounds a day. So uh, and the backlog in the asylum system is is the worst it's ever been. So it can take so long for cases to get heard. So I think it's entirely the wrong conversation, but I think it is the government trying to make an enemy out of asylum seekers and trying to signal to some of its core voters who are very hostile to asylum seekers um, that, you know, it's, it's sort of taking their concerns seriously. And also slightly trying to put Labour on the spot a bit, right? I mean, will Labour re- be robust in opposing these proposals? I'm not sure, actually. I think if you look at the patterns of politics around asylum seeking, I don't think New Labour was as bad as this Conservative government, but making a scapegoat out of asylum seekers did really start under Tony Blair's time. And I think Labour will see it as quite difficult territory to get engaged in. I think they'll see it as a culture wars trap that's being set for them by the Conservatives. Um, So I suspect they won't come out as robustly as people like me would like on this. And finally, Sonia, will you be watching the football tonight? I will definitely be watching the football tonight, Heather, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, there was a, a very funny column in the FT yesterday, and we were not funny, but alarming column in the FT yesterday, in which it was suggested that some conservatives see Gareth Southgate, the England manager, as a tool of deep woke because of his support for for taking the knee. And obviously, you know, we've seen Boris Johnson umming and ahhing a bit about whether he thought taking the knee was a good idea before eventually deciding once the whole team were doing it that perhaps it was. It, it what well, it's very odd, isn't it, how politicians want to sort of jump on these these occasions. It is. And again, I just think it shows the Conservatives, it really shows up the Conservative culture war strategy as so inauthentic as really, as well as really divisive. And we saw, you know, Boris Johnson and Priti Patel. I mean, Priti Patel was one of the worst sort of in terms of talking about footballers taking the knee and how she wouldn't do it and sort of picking on them for doing it. And I actually think people are starting to see through it because it does look really hypocritical when you've got that picture of Boris Johnson standing on that massive flag outside Downing Street and then Priti Patel tweeting her congratulations to the team and sort of forgetting whatever she said about taking the knee. It's too early to say what that means in electoral terms. This is just one of my hunches. But I think if you look at the by-election result in Cheshire and Amersham, for example, where the Conservatives lost a Heartland seat, um, you know, I think that was partly because some of their long-standing voters you know, who are maybe actually quite socially liberal, maybe like David Cameron, um, what David Cameron was trying to do with the Conservative brand, will have a look at this stuff and just think, oh, it's dreadful. Sonia Soda, with, with fingers crossed for tonight's result, thanks very much. Thanks for having me on, Heather. After the break, we ask what's next for Keir Starmer. We'll be right back. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. Now, last week, we were discussing how a nasty campaign in Batley and Spen was making Keir Starmer nervous. But on Friday morning, we heard... I do hereby declare that Kim Michelle Leadbeater is duly elected. A win is a win. But Labour kept hold of the seat by the narrowest of margins, just 323 votes. So what should Keir Starmer take from this by-election and those in Hartlepool and Chesham and Amersham? Is the Labour leader general election ready? To ponder all this, I spoke with Stephen Bush, the New Statesman's political editor... Guardian columnist Zoe Williams and former Labour advisor Tom Hamilton. Welcome, everyone. It's great to have you on. Maybe we'll start with you, Stephen. We're always told, aren't we, not to read too much into one by-election. They all have their own quirks. But we've had three come along at once, haven't we? Almost almost at once. What do you think's the message about where Labour stands after, after we've seen Hartlepool and Chesham and Amersham and Batley and Spen? Well, I think Hartlepool is actually the most important of the three because the thing that we didn't know for certain, but we now actually have a pretty good idea, thanks to all three, but Hartlepool's sort of best illustration, is what would have happened if the Brexit party had stood down in Labour-held seats as well as in Conservative-held seats? And the answer in Hartlepool is pretty clear. All of those extra votes go to the Conservative party, which... You know, if, if, if your brief is to go, you know, if you're a shadow minister and your job is to go, actually, here's why this result doesn't reflect terribly on Keir Starmer, that's great because it means you can go, well, look, this would have happened under Jeremy Corbyn if it weren't for the fact that Brexit party stood down. However, if you have an interest in the Labour Party doing better at the next election, it's, it's kind of terrifying. And actually, the most important sort of thing on their risk register is that the Brexit party is not going to be a factor in Normanton, uh, Pontefract and Castleford or Doncaster North or any of these other uh, uh, seats where there are Labour MPs only thanks to the presence of, of a Nigel Farage-backed party. The sort of big, big thing that Labour needs to be very aware of is that it needs to make a big inroad into that Conservative Brexit Party block of voters just to stand still at the next election. Tom, they're going to have to, Keir Starmer's going to have to frame his message with that absolutely in, in mind, isn't he? I mean, you know, they're, they're, we're constantly being asked what Keir Starmer stands for and, you know, what the narrative is and all of that stuff. But that's what they're going to have to be thinking about all the time, isn't it? Is, is those voters that they, they need to kind of focus on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's been really clear for the last however long it's been, year and a half or so, that even when Labour was doing better in the polls than it has been for the last few months, it was making some inroads into people who hadn't voted Labour but also hadn't voted Tory at the, uh, at the last election. I think in the longer term, there are clearly some really big challenges that, that they are nowhere near solving. In the shorter term, I think Batley and Spen has, has solved you know, a, a really big sort of immediate existential crisis for, for the current Labour leadership in terms of putting to bed what would have been, I think, a really, really difficult summer in terms of what the what the story would have been. So it's, you know, all the expectations. And this is and this is a this is a useful a useful lesson is that if you set your expectations really, really low, you can get a really big win out of a very small win. 
that's Zoe. That's right, isn't it? It's it's felt like it was. A, it looked a bit like a sort of different Keir Starmer on Friday morning, didn't it? Look looked like he's kind of got his mojo back a bit, and it was partly because our expectations were so low that Labour could hold it. And I think, yeah, genuinely, I think the leadership's expect. I don't think it was sort of deliberate expectation setting. I genuinely think they had pretty low expectations. But does it does it now create a bit of space for Keir Starmer? I mean, he, we were in this kind of almost crazy situation where you know there were stories about his deputy challenging him on the on the eve of a by-election which is pretty extraordinary situation to be in isn't it the thing is you know it's it I, I feel a bit inconsistent about this because while Corbyn was leader I was constantly saying go further in go closer to the cephalogical analysis go further into what's really going on don't talk about this in broad terms of left and right whereas with Keir I feel very much pan out a bit, stop talking about it cephalogically and look at the bigger picture, which is, you know, yes, they hemorrhage support to the Conservatives in the Red Wall. But if you think about what's happened to the Labour Party generally over the past 10 years, they basically lose a large number of votes to anybody who makes a really clear case. So they've lost votes to the right in England, they've got they've lost votes effectively to the left in Scotland, and they and those are really meaningful votes. And so they're not actually losing to a political program; they're losing to a political stance, which is, you know, very trenchant, very sure of itself. Anybody who's making a really clear and strident case can apparently lift votes off the Labour Party as though they were taking sweets off it, and. You've got to really think about what's going on there, whether people are saying to the Labour Party, we need you to be more patriotic, we need you to be more nationalist, or whether people are actually saying to them, maybe it's time to say who you are. Stephen, what's your analysis of of the message that Labour needs to send now to those voters that you talked about who may have switched over from the Brexit Party and be tempted to move to the Boris Johnson column? You know, what what does Labour need to say and and how has it not been able to kind of get its get its message across how why is Keir not being able to get his message across and tell us all what he stands for if you think about it so say think about the Miliband era right the the essence of the disagreement between David Cameron and Ed Miliband was that Ed Miliband did not think the economy was working well for the average person and we can talk about you know whether he he articulated that well all the time and the decisions he made that may not have been the best way of, of putting that house through but that was the pretty clear through line of his pitch for the leadership his big conference speeches and kind of everything that the Labour Party under Ed attempted to do. The through line of Corbynism 2015 to 2017 was, you know, austerity doesn't work, you know, we'll reverse that. You know, they, they were clear political projects. And I think the thing that's quite difficult at the moment to look at is that, well, is this a project to take the Labour Party um, to the right? Is it a project to, you know, do the 2017 manifesto, but be more believed on the crime and security staff? I don't think anyone really knows. I mean, one has to hope, and Keir Starmer does. Um, but I don't think anyone really knows, and it's therefore really hard to go, well, the way they should present the whatever it is that they want to Tory voters, to Lib Dem voters, to whatever voters they might want to appeal to, is difficult to answer when we don't know what it is that they are trying to offer any of those voters. I think the problem that Labour's got, there are two problems, actually. One is that the Tories have a decent narrative now of what the the post-pandemic world looks like, which is basically a bit of levelling up, a bit of global Britain post-Brexit and a bit of net zero stuff. All of which, you know, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating, but they've got stuff to say about it. But they've they've also got a really good opportunity to sort of reset some of the baseline to British politics, which I think is one of the 
bigger challenges facing sort of the second half of, of this parliament, which is that I think the pandemic potentially gives the Tories quite a good alibi for some of the problems that have emerged from the last decade or so. The, the year zero, zero approach that you got when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister in the first place in 2019 has sort of been replaced by a new pandemic year zero that I think potentially and very dangerously wipes the slate clean in terms of how, you know, what, what the world what the world looks like that Keir Starmer and the Labour Party are projecting their future onto. And it's just slightly too early to say what that looks like. And Stephen, how important do you think it is that Labour has a sort of narrative about the crisis and how badly things have been done and the fact that, you know, this isn't year zero and, you know, we had public services which were underfunded and therefore vulnerable and we had you know, low paid workers in, in casual jobs and therefore, you know, they were very vulnerable to the crisis and that's why there were great holes in the welfare safety net and so on. I mean, Starmer has tried to do this a bit. He had a speech, didn't he, where he said that austerity had kind of weakened the foundations of society. And I think Labour were hoping that was their version of George Osborne and David Cameron saying that, that Gordon Brown had failed to fix the roof while the sun was shining, which of course was one of the ways in which they tried to show that the global financial crisis and the consequences of it were Labour's fault rather than being something from outside. How important is it that Labour and Starmer have a story about the fact that we were already vulnerable before the crisis and that the government didn't manage the crisis well? Or, or will we have kind of moved on from that point, do you think, by the time we get to another general election? Yeah, I think by the time we're at the next election, we will we'll be a post-pandemic country. I think the really important thing for Labour is for them to prevent, as Tom sums up really well, the Conservatives being able to go, this is, you know, we're new again, right? Because what is the, you know, opposition parties have so little going for them, but one of their main weapons is that they are new and the other lot aren't. And Boris Johnson's biggest gift to the Conservative Party in 2019 was when he was able to present, you know, a government which, yes, had important divergences from the Cameron May approach, but had more in common with it than it had divergent. Most first-term governments are re-elected. It is the most important thing for the Labour Party, I think, is that they, that they, to the fullest extent they can, do not allow the Conservatives to go, hey, we're shiny and new. Yeah, and Zoe, do you think Keir Starmer's the right message carrier for that? that that's quite going to be quite an important thing, isn't it? He's going to have to say, you know, these guys have been in charge for a very long time. You know, Boris Johnson, Johnson isn't this sort of shiny new character who's come from nowhere. He was, you know, it was his party that have left the country in this sort of vulnerable state. Is, is he the right person to, to look like a fresh new alternative to this Tory government that's been around for a long time? Keir Starmer handles ideas and statements like he's handling raw uranium. You know, he's so frightened of saying something, of something dropping in the wrong way or at the wrong time. And I've been thinking about why, where that comes from, where that extreme caution comes from. And it is partly personal, which is to answer your question. He might be too cautious personally to make kind of bold inroads but it is also there there are two things going on one is that all these focus groups have come back saying nobody wants to see the virus politicized and he's taken that extremely seriously so he won't politicize the virus but you know the rest of politics has been completely obliterated by the virus so if you won't politicize a virus or make political connections between public spending and virus response then you you're not left with very much to say the other thing of course is brexit he doesn't want to be mr remain so he won't talk about brexit but actually, you can't not talk about Brexit. And if you don't talk about Brexit, then all you do is create this kind of lacuna 
which the Conservative Party can fill with nonsense, you know, kind of, it's all the EU's fault nonsense, or it's actually all down to COVID nonsense. So unless there, unless somebody, whether it's Keir Starmer or somebody else, is prepared to go there, then they will continue to look extremely diffident and kind of peculiarly purposeless. I think the other thing about both Brexit and the pandemic is that they are fundamentally projects that the public wants the government to succeed at. And if the alternative, well, there is no alternative so far as the pandemic goes to working through it. The alternative to Brexit, I think we've already litigated whether it's a good idea to to do it again. And those of us who thought it was a terrible idea lost that argument. As I say, in the longer term, yes, there needs to be a much bigger vision than there is. In the short term, I think it's okay to wait for the right moment. The danger is you don't know what that mo- when that moment is. And Stephen, just just lastly, you know, there's now a, a, a sort of little bit of a gap, isn't there, before the autumn conference? Keir Starmer didn't get his autumn conference last year or only in a sort of insipid online way. His MPs will go very quiet for now. All this chatter about leadership contests will, will disappear for a bit, won't it? But how much time do you think his colleagues will give him? There was certainly before Batley and Spen, a lot of muttering wasn't there about you know, is he really the guy for this job? And, and, and you know, do, does there need to be a challenge? Hard to see who has the numbers, to be honest. But, you know, is, he, is, is there still quite a risk for him, do you think, if he doesn't get the messaging right and if he doesn't get on the front foot over the summer and into the autumn? Summer is always difficult for the opposition party because the government basically goes on holiday. And although we go in holiday on holiday in dribs and drabs, we do still have to write about something. And often something does turn out to be beef in the main opposition party. And I think Zoe is exactly right to single out one of the really important things about Keir Starmer, that he can make an asset, but is currently a weakness, is that he is a massive neophyte politician, right? But I think if he can't demonstrate by, you know, May of next year, that there has been improvement and a sign of improvement, then surely people in, you know, get quite worried. But the other important point that you raised there, Heather, though, is that no one has the numbers at the moment. And in some ways, the paradox of Keir Starmer is if we were a bit better at his job, he would be slightly more at risk of it. You know, why is there not an alternative candidate? It's because the shadow cabinet are either, if you take the view of one half of the parliamentary party, rubbish, or if you take the view of the other half, kept on the leash and therefore unable to show they're any good. But one way or the other, that means that there is not currently an overwhelming candidate for leadership coming from within the shadow cabinet. Why are various people on the back benches so concerned to pull the trigger? Because as it currently stands, they think that the rule book means, um, you know, Corbynism back, pale rider, and its name was Richard Bergen, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if Keir Starmer improved even enough that the shadow cabinet started to, you know, to punch above their weight in the bubble, or even enough to change the Labour Party rule book, well, then paradoxically, he'd be in more danger than he is now. So I think there are lots and lots of ways Keir could survive to the next election. One is by improving on the job, but the other, ironically, is continuing to list slightly uh, and to take on water um, below the... I don't know I'm doing an nautical metaphor. I don't understand anything about ships or boats. (laughs) Thank you all um, very much. It's definitely going to be quite an interesting few months ahead. Stephen Bush, Tom Hamilton, Zoe Williams, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra. Kamala Harris has had a tough few weeks tackling the migrant crisis and voting rights, drawing criticism as she does so. So Guardian Live blogger Joni Grieve asks the former communications director for Al Gore to explain what exactly the role of a vice president is. 
But for now, I want to thank our guests, Sonia Soda, Zoe Williams, Stephen Bush and Tom Hamilton. The producer is Yolene Goffan. I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.